Hello, welcome to the newest edition of Pro Pharma Talks. Today, we, we will be talking about the flu vaccine and we get into a heated discussion about coronavirus. But before we get into that, I'd like to remind you to review and subscribe. Hello and welcome to the newest edition of Pro Pharma Talks. My name is Alex Fernandez. Alongside me as always is Dr. Craig Stern. And uh, with us today is a guest, Mark Wahlberg, and he's the medical science liaison to GSK and associate clinical professor at UOP. So thank you for joining us, Mark. Thanks. Um, Craig had a few words for us to start the show off with. <laughs> so go ahead, Craig. Yeah, um, we wanted to talk a little bit more about this whole issue of vaccines facts and how um, how you address the whole issue of vaccinations, those things that people need, where the real data is. And then, of course, subsequent to that conversation uh, came this whole issue with regard to coronavirus. So we brought in an expert, Dr. Wahlberg, in order to talk about these things. And so we thought we'd have a discussion back and forth so we could bring in expertise about all of this issue. With due respect, this is not a political conversation. It's not a conversation about anti or pro anything. It's about the facts, where they exist, and, and uh, what is the evidence behind something. Because this is medicine, and we treat people based on facts. And the great thing about medicine is that all the facts are free, and you can get them online, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> and yeah. not from your news organization, from the fake news organizations on Facebook and Twitter <laughs> and whatnot. We'll so that's why stay we, away from that. <laughs> we try, we try. But it's so easy and accessible. You can Thank click you, it. Alex. Yeah. So disregard all that. We're going to rely on the expertise of Dr. Wahlberg here. So one of the things we wanted to talk about, I wanted to start the show off with is immunity. Okay. So uh, anybody who's been through biology in high school knows the first thing you learn is immunity. When it comes to sicknesses, you learn once you're exposed to something, your body can identify it, and therefore you won't get sick like that ever again, right? That's the general idea. Sure. I, I'd give you that as a general overview of how our immune system and specifically our adaptive immune system works is that when we encounter a pathogen, we have this innate ability to generate an immune response, mm -hmm. which in some cases gives us either short or long-lasting immunity to that pathogen. See, I know something. You did. I'm very impressed. Now, <laughs> the problem with that mm -hmm. is that these pathogens have consequences when you contract a disease. Okay. Um, if we think about polio, there is a fixed amount or percent of people that may have limb paralysis for the rest of their lives. Uh, with measles, everybody thinks, oh, it's a rash that you get and then it goes away. You know, you don't feel that good. You cough. In reality, it actually causes a good deal of long-term conditions, including blindness, deafness, and a lot of times can result in death mm -hmm. from the pneumonia that it can cause as well, from just our own immune response to it. And those are, those are some of the things that people are forgetting about now. We don't see it enough. Right. Um, you know, in, for instance, with measles, um, it's about one to two people out of a thousand cases that will die from it. Well, if we're only seeing maybe 100, 200 cases in an outbreak, we typically won't see any fatal cases. We do occasionally, especially as the numbers go up higher, and they still do see 
fatalities in other countries that cannot vaccinate or are still not able to vaccinate. Mm -hmm. uh, but we forget the consequences of these diseases if we're not seeing it right in front of us happen. And yeah, and let me add something. The, the younger population doesn't have any history with remembering what happened in the 1950s with polio, polio and what happened with measles and mumps and rubella and all of that. So we have a little bit of a social uh, issue where our social contract doesn't have a memory of what happened with it. And now we're trying to deal with trying to prevent the consequences when the consequences already had a history that may not be part of general conversation. Maybe there should be like a, a social media video since everybody's stuck on social media, maybe every year kind of circulate a video around to kind of remind us of what happened. But, but I, think, <laughs> I think still people will get numb to that because Probably. they've never seen it happen here and they're gonna deem it fake news that this was just a constructed video. It's a conspiracy when, man. When in reality they had entire wards of people on iron yeah. lungs who could not breathe on their own for the duration of their life after they got their polio infection. We, we have no perception of that in an age where we can treat almost all chronic diseases now and at least help prolong life a little or manage the symptoms to some extent. Whereas this was something we had nothing for except sticking them in an exterior ventilation system. So when we're speaking about vaccines, right now we're in the middle of what we called it peak flu season right now, right? Which a lot of people are thinking we're getting past the holidays and so uh -huh. we're coming out of it. Um, what people forget is flu season is not just one virus. Uh -huh. uh, there's typically multiple strains circulating. What we've seen this year is very atypical, but really there's not a lot of consistency between flu seasons at times. We actually saw a large spike in influenza B virus that came in really early, which we normally don't see. Uh, that's more common in Europe per se. And now we're actually seeing influenza A spike. So it's actually switched to what it normally is in most of the years in North America. And so we're actually seeing still very high rates of influenza, hospitalizations, and we just passed the 100 mark as of Friday for pediatric deaths. So there's been 105 confirmed pediatric deaths from influenza. Now for... Were these people, yeah, I, um, did they get a vaccination? Um, I don't have the hard numbers on that. Most of the people that were hospitalized, um, I believe it was around 74% were unvaccinated. So if you look at the wow. ratio between people vaccinated versus unvaccinated, higher, much higher percentage were not vaccinated. Uh, that also goes to some of the misconception that's out there about the flu shot uh -huh. in that people think, well, if I get it, is it really preventing anything? Or am I just now getting another shot? And I'll, I'll be perfectly honest, and I say this all the time, I hate shots. I don't ever want to get a shot. Yeah, I, I, no matter how many I give, no matter how many I've received, I still, I don't know of anybody that says, yeah, I, I would love a flu shot right now. Yeah, I want a needle in my arm right now. Yeah, no, it doesn't yeah. happen. <laughs> so some of the issues that come up around that are we have data every year right. that shows benefit of receiving a flu shot. Overall, it shows reduction in your chances of getting influenza. It's mm -hmm. not perfect. Anybody who goes out there and says you will not get influenza if you get the shot, I'm sorry, but they're not giving you factual information. Uh -huh. uh, but it does decrease your chance of getting it. It also decreases your chance of having severe influenza where you might be hospitalized. 
So right. it's decreasing your chance of getting it and also decreasing the severity of that disease, which we see with most vaccines. Right. Let me let me um, interrupt one for a second. Uh, we're, we talk a lot about data. Uh, Mark, tell them where they can get uh, the source of sure. the data so it's not just opinion, but there's facts. Absolutely. So um, at least twice a year, the CDC releases estimates for the annual flu vaccine effectiveness. They also detail on a weekly basis how many flu cases have been reported, the percent of influenza-like illness people are seeing. It's all available online for free at the CDC. Anyone can actually sign up to receive the CDC's publication, which is called Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report. We usually abbreviate that MMWR. And they actually publish an interim analysis at the middle of the year to characterize what influenza has been seen, how effective the vaccine is, and then at the end of the season, typically around late July, August, they publish a final report of that entire season that shows how effective the vaccine was. And I'll tell you, sometimes they're not spectacular numbers. Uh, sometimes we miss a little bit because the virus will mutate away from where we thought it would go, and we might not have any significant benefit against a single strain in mm. that flu vaccine, whereas other strains, it may provide great protection. Because just to remind everybody, all influenza vaccines that we have in the U.S. right now contain three and mostly four different strains that it protects you from. So it's not just a one virus of protection that you're getting. You're actually getting protection from multiple strains when you get the influenza vaccine. And you said about three or four different strains? Correct. How many different strains are there? Of influenza? Yeah. Um, I believe, I, I don't, don't quote me on the number. Um <laughs> I would argue there's probably hundreds, mm -hmm. and the real issue here is it's mutating constantly and changing right. constantly. And so people say, my wife has even asked me, why can't we put all these strains in one vaccine and give you this one shot and it'll cover you for everything? And I said, because the influenza that we might see this coming season doesn't even exist yet. Right. Because it hasn't mutated or drifted to its current form. And so even giving this whopping dose of antigen would still possibly not provide protection. But to further emphasize what, what you uh, said, though, was that if they get, um, the question would be, well, then why get a shot? Absolutely. Because there's so many and it's mutating, you don't know what's going to happen. But the point that you made was is that, one, it may be prevention, but number two, it decreases severity. the severity of yes. the illness when you get yes. it. Those are important That's points. That's probably the most important because that that a lot of people, uh, from I, I hear it from all over, mm -hmm. where they talk about getting the, the flu shot mm -hmm. and then they get sick immediately after. Sure. He's like, you can convince them that it could have been a lot worse in that case. True. I mean, so, it, it's not 100% true, of course, mm -hmm. but... Remember, you got to tug on these people's emotions a little bit. Right. I mean, the things to remember is this is not the same flu vaccine we had back in the 70s. Right. This is anything that's injected is completely dead. It's been stripped and purified of any viral particulate uh, or most viral particulate. There's even some, if you're really worried about this, that are grown completely free with egg. And they're actually grown completely free of virus. So all they do is grow the surface protein and use that as part of the vaccine. And again, very good safety and efficacy with those vaccines. Mm -hmm. So there's options out there, especially here in California, 
we're required to give all children and pregnant women thimerosal or mercury-free vaccines. There's a whole host of those available at almost any community pharmacy. Uh, you can get a egg-free, thimerosal-free, preservative-free option at this point if that's your concern. Wow. So um, we, we mentioned it's already peak flu season. We know it, it changes. We hope it's peak. I hope it is. And that, is it still worthwhile to get the shot now? So based on the interim analysis of the CDC, which again, published for free in the MMWR, uh, if you just type that into Google, it pretty much comes right up. Um, you can even subscribe to get it on a weekly basis. It doesn't mm -hmm. come along with a lot of spam. Basically, there's still some protection there for some of the strains. Um, somewhere around 45 to 50% reduction in the number of cases uh, that have gotten the flu shot versus those who have not. Right. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to prevent a possible drift away from what the vaccine is. And we've seen that with some of the strains that are highly circulating. They've mm -hmm. actually drifted a little from the vaccine. Right. But again, we're talking about four different viruses that we're providing protection for in the influenza vaccine. And so it helps. Um, even if you've gotten influenza, you typically have only gotten a single strain. And so it helps to get the flu shot to get the coverage for the other three. Okay. Looking back to predict the future, ProPharma performs retrospective pharmacy claims audits to ensure compliance with PBM contracts. Fundamental areas for comprehensive audit are formulary compliance, eligibility, pricing and MAC compliance, invalid claims, excluded benefits. For more information, please visit ProPharmaConsultants.com. All right, so going back to what I had mentioned before, um, the question I had about someone who gets the vaccine and then gets sick from it immediately after. Okay. How, how, how would you handle that situation? Well, first of all, you're scaring me a little bit because you're talking about a vaccine and you're pointing right here. You well, hopefully are never getting a vaccine right there. Like, I meant right here. Oh, I meant right here. If, if somebody goes to give I you meant. a vaccine right here, please, please I'll, step I'll, away. I was, talking with, I was talking with Don't Craig about that person. Never mind. Yeah, no. Right, right, right here. Right here is where we want in okay. most cases. Um, you know, the, what, what I actually love about vaccines is that we have so much data available to us mm -hmm. not just on you know what we were talking about with the efficacy estimates right. our effectiveness uh, estimates but we have a lot of data on safety and influenza vaccine in particular is monitored every year both before it's licensed and then what we were what i was talking about is these estimates they're also looking at safety moving forward okay. and i would argue that there's no drug or vaccine, which vaccine is just a preventative drug in this case, that has the same level of data that is generated for it on an annual basis. This is a regular thing that's being done. And so I've had a lot of, in vaccinating students and vaccinating patients, I've had people say, you know, I got a shot and here's what happened. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I say is, well, that's too bad. I, I'm sorry you had a bad reaction to it. Um, I mean, I generally get red all over my arm and my shoulder hurts for a good couple weeks after my flu shot. I react very strongly to them over time. Um, that's just how my body reacts. I still give myself one every year mm -hmm. because I understand the risk benefit in that. 
But let's let's go a step further and let's talk about mm -hmm. these people that have had very bad reactions to vaccines. And because we do have so much data on this, the statistics look like it's about one in a million people will have a reaction to a vaccine, a serious reaction. We're not talking about a sore arm or they feel like a little funky. That's just the body's immune system responding to the vaccine. Right. But let's say they have something like Guillain-Barre syndrome, which we actually know now is far more common from getting a viral infection than it is from getting the vaccine mm. in the case of influenza. Um, maybe they have febrile seizures as a child. Uh, I mean, I have two little girls, they're fully vaccinated, and I can tell you, we stressed every time they got shots because one, nobody likes shots, including children, and two, you're always worried, am I gonna have the reaction? Is my child gonna have the reaction? That's a real concern, and I totally jive with that as a parent and as a clinician, mm -hmm. that is it possible? Absolutely. Right. Is it probable or likely? No. And so in those patients that have had a reaction that can no longer receive, say, a tetanus shot, which you want tetanus immunity because tetanus is still out there. You want diphtheria immunity, and if you can get pertussis immunity, great from the shot, but it seems to be waning. Right. But what it really also requires in the case of highly transmittable diseases like measles and influenza is you're actually relying on the people around you to be vaccinated if you yourself cannot be vaccinated. So we think about these patients who maybe have cancer or you know we have a lot of immunosuppressive therapies that are out there now for all kinds of conditions that people are gonna be on long-term. These people maybe cannot receive some vaccines or even if they do say get a flu shot, they might have a lower response to it and it might not build their immunity much. Right. That actually is where we go from the individual benefit of vaccination to the societal benefit. Right. And so we talk a lot about, well, if you have that patient who is immunosuppressed, you have a child going through chemotherapy, it's imperative that the family that's cocooning them, the school that is cocooning them, and any other, you know, I think of church. If you're going to church, you want your entire church body surrounding them with immunity uh -huh. so that they don't have additional vectors possibly getting them ill. Right. And that's what we've talked about in the past with herd immunity, where mm -hmm. we're trying to make sure that we don't have these pockets that have not been vaccinated um, and creating a problem for what goes on. I have enormous respect for the fact that there are people who don't want to get vaccinated or they have some particular problem with it. But this is more than just my problem. It becomes everybody's problem and how Correct. we address that. And there, you know, the, the, one of the great things the government did, and this was around the polio days, when there was a whole uh, batch of polio vaccine that went out that actually contained live polio that was being injected into patients, and they were potentially getting polio from this. It was called the Cutter Incident. If you want to Google that, I think it has a pretty good uh, wiki page as well. People were still lining up to get that vaccine at that time because they knew the risk of polio and they were willing to accept a risky vaccine versus getting real polio in the wild that would forever deform them or forever cripple them from this disease. So what the government actually did, because the, we stopped actually making vaccines for a while because no one wanted to take that liability. So what the government did is they said, look, we, we see that there's individual risk benefit with this. 
But what we also see for something like measles, polio, diphtheria, there is a huge societal benefit available if we vaccinate a sufficient amount of the population. And so this is what actually led to the vaccine injury compensation program. Mm -hmm. And it, it, a lot of times you'll see these referred to as vaccine courts, where if you are that one in a million person who gets a true serious reaction to the vaccine that is life altering, you'll be compensated for that because they want manufacturers to be able to produce these because there is such a societal benefit. And they want patients who believe in this societal benefit, this herd immunity, that they will be protected from these extremely rare but life-altering adverse events. And honestly, if you think about this, even anaphylaxis or a severe allergic reaction where people can stop breathing, have low blood pressure, um, this is far beyond them just passing out after a vaccine, um, it's actually true for any medication that this can happen. So the anaphylaxis rate that we see with an influenza vaccine is actually much lower than what we see with a lot of common medications that are used to treat very common diseases. Right. And um, on that note, we'll, we'll move on to another vaccine that they're working on, which is for the, you know, the very widespread, commonly known coronavirus having nothing to do with the beer, you know. COVID-19. Yes, we'll call yes, it COVID-19 right, right. so we don't implicate any country or beverage. That's right. Beverage, that beverage is important, though. <laughs> but anyways, moving on. The How does this impact? Because we talked about there's a there's a certain sect that's against the vaccines, and we understand their, their you know, reluctance to try the vaccine or to use the vaccine or to get it, actually. How does this impact the coronavirus? Well, the, the problem we have with, right now with the coronavirus mm -hmm. is we just don't have enough information and we definitely don't have a vaccine that's right. anywhere close to being used. Um, I think we're several months out from even preliminary trials of this at this point. That's um, scary. <laughs> thankfully, they have characterized the virus. They have a protein structure, um, specifically a surface protein structure, and that's really the first step in generating some kind of vaccine against it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think... Coronavirus, I'm, I don't want to minimize this at all. Okay. Because it is clearly starting to spread. We now have a pocket in South Korea. We also have another pocket in Italy that all sprang, they think, from a single individual at a single hotel. And now they have several hundred cases. There may also be some other little pockets here and there. We just got our confirm, first confirmed case in South America, I believe. So this does look like it is spreading, mm -hmm. and it's very capable of spreading human to human. It, it is definitely efficient at transmitting. Uh, right now, we're still even skeptical or questioning how many asymptomatic carriers are, how many people are walking around with this virus, potentially shedding this virus. You know, they get the sniffles. We were talking about earlier, the wind kicks up and all our allergies get yeah. flared up. Well, how do we know that they're not shedding virus because we're not out there testing 100% of the population. So we really don't know the true denominator of the number of people that have been f infected with this. Can I interrupt for one second? Um, uh, one reads on things, and I think it's important, we've brought it up in the past too, and that is because they contract it, that doesn't mean that they're dying. Correct. <laughs> and so I think we need to make sure, and we'd appreciate if you'd make a comment of, because I get a cold, or because I, I, there's a bunch of people around me who have colds, 
doesn't necessarily mean that they're all going to have all the consequences of a cold. It, it's right. like any or many, I would say, viral diseases. Specifically, it seems like it is a respiratory transmitted disease um, that you pick up if somebody sneezes in their hand or coughs in their hand, touches a door handle, we call that fomite transmission, then somebody else goes and touches that and then rubs their nose, they've now potentially infected themselves. We don't really know too much about how long it lasts. Um, I mean, if we want to think for comparison, measles virus lasts two hours in the air of a room. Mm -hmm. We know hepatitis A can last weeks or longer when it's on a surface. Um, that doesn't get exposed to any kind of disinfectant or light. Norovirus is also very contagious. And, you know, we are seeing these cruise ships get infected with this, and it almost looks like a large norovirus outbreak um, where a, a significant number of them are being infected. Mm -hmm. The cruise ships, though, I would caution people to draw the true estimate of the severe cases from because most of the people that we're seeing that are hospitalized and really the most severe or fatal cases they have a preponderance of those that are older or who have chronic diseases. So if we think about this, and a lot of people forget just how connected our body is, if you have somebody with a heart condition and they now have a lung infection, well, a lot of times most cardiac issues come from an oxygen deficit. They're, they're very sensitive to any lowering of oxygen. And so if you get a lung infection, Many of these people will have cardiovascular events. This is true for influenza. It appears to be very true for coronavirus as well. So, you know, I, I have my nine-year-old daughter asking me about coronavirus at this point. Yeah. And she's seeing that I'm getting daily updates on this from various sources, um, which, I mean, there's a lot of valid free sources out there like the CDC and the WHO. If you don't trust our government, you can go to the WHO if you trust them more. But these are official counts that are coming out sometimes on a daily basis mm. with the increase in cases, the total case count um, from valid sources, I think is the key thing with that. Because uh, early on, and we still have a lot of misinformation that's circulating, and I think we also still have a lot of no information yeah. in certain areas of how this is spreading and really the, the true case count that we're going to see. So this has nothing to do with bets? It might. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't know. Um, yeah, the, yeah. Cor the coronavirus, what we know from the, this is, I believe, the seventh coronavirus that's been detected in humans. Mm -hmm. um, we've had one in the past that was transmitted, and it's a carrier of in camels. Mm -hmm. And so people were getting this. They, they dubbed that one the Middle Eastern Respiratory COVID, so MERS-CoV. Um, oh, okay. And that's that, why they went that with the COVID-19 because they didn't want to identify any region. And COVID-19 just stands for coronavirus disease found in 2019. And there is actually a debate going on right now. Is it from bats? Is it from these little, I'd call them cute and fuzzy, but they're actually like little scary and scaly anteaters um, that might have come from them. Um, but we know that other condition, other coronaviruses have come from bats, uh -huh. which are actually really good incubate incubators for viruses, including rabies is probably the most known. And it's because their immune system tolerates these viruses and they become reservoirs for a lot of these. Wow. wow. So That's we don't amazing. actually know the source yet, <laughs> uh, at least from what I've seen this morning. They're still up in the air of where the actual if it's a animal source or if it just came about in humans. Mark, wow. there's been questions about um, the data that comes out of China 
versus the data that is being reported in the United States, in Italy, in South Korea, mm -hmm. um, et cetera. What about the validity of information? Because there is a, a natural argument that goes on today about people <coughs> arguing about facts. Absolutely. Um, we have numbers that have come out of any country that has had virus. Uh, you know, we're even getting more data as it comes out over how it was actually transmitted. Like South Korea, for instance, it seems to be there was one individual um, that was the patient O that started this in this very small religious sect. And it just went crazy from there. Even before and after she was seen for this virus, she went back. And it appears that she was one of these what we call a super spreader or a super shedder. Oh, wow. In that there are some people that will just shed virus like crazy. This is true for influenza. This is true for measles. It appears to be true for coronavirus as well now. And so if you get one of these individuals that's in a smaller area with a lot of other individuals shedding virus, it appears that it transmits very effectively. It looks oh, like wow. it transmits about as well as influenza. Mm -hmm. um, and again, we don't really know the asymptomatic rate at this point, so it's very hard. There's been some discussion about what we call the r naught or the number of people that are infected. So it's been very hard to get those estimates. Right. Um, what I have heard from the community in general is that they believe it is much more widespread than we know, particularly in China. Right. Um, but again, there's no counter data to what has been released to actually validate it at this oh. point. Um, but some people were citing earlier reports that um, we still saw cases after the market that they believe is where this all began. There's actually some data that's showing it might have occurred before, but then that there was sustained human-to-human -human transfer well after, about a month after the market was closed, which with the incubation period of this virus, that could only have been human-to-human -human transmission unless there was some very widespread animal transmitter yeah. of this. Um, so until there's data to highly refute that, I think everything's speculative. Right. Um, so I, I would just say, let's look at the numbers we have. Um, it, it does appear to be spreading quite well right now. And I believe we will see, I mean, if South Korea and Italy are any example that we can use it looks like this will spread very effectively and it only needs about one individual to be ill wow. um, and, to contribute to hundreds of cases and i think that i mean because there's a lot of talk about it being potentially a pandemic mm -hmm. and what goes on we should also put it in perspective for everybody so that everyone knows what we're talking about sure. so that they understand the difference between an epidemic a pandemic and then how does this compare to the number of cases of influenza? Sure. How does it compare to the number of cases of measles or, or whatever? Sure. So, you know, what, what I'd be curious of is, you know, how many how many people have died of influenza for this season alone? And the answer is we don't know. Um, there's not surveillance in many countries to actually even identify this. And influenza can cause so many other conditions, like even a heart attack in patients it's really hard to say how many truly deaths have been caused by influenza. What's the CDC publishing with regard to that? Um, I don't even know that they generally reserve that till the end. 
um, you know, influenza slash pneumonia is always a top 10 of the top 10 ways you'll die in the U.S. Um, and that's because these two really go hand in hand. So you might get influenza and the immune response to it may scar your lungs to the point where you get a secondary bacterial infection, strep pneumo, a whole host of other things. And that's what actually ends up killing you. Right. And it's a chicken or the egg type argument at that point. I, I think that we're spoiled a little bit in America. Let me say that. Um, <laughs> because if you show up with, with fever, high fever that was fast onset, muscle aches, headache, sore throat, some countries are going to treat you for malaria. And they're not going to do any tests. They might do a, a blood test, just look under a microscope to see if they see parasites. Mm -hmm. You get better in three days. Could have been malaria. Could have been influenza. We don't know. So the surveillance... It's like a scared response kind of thing. This is true for a lot of viruses we have. I mean, we think about a few years to Zika, and then it was chikungunya before that. There's dengue out there. Mm -hmm. A lot of times these diseases go completely unreported because they all these viral illnesses look so similar. So I think on a global level, especially right now with influenza in the Northern Hemisphere being at very high activity, a lot of this is gonna be differentiating coronavirus from influenza, which I think the good thing is, is they now have valid coronavirus test kits right. after a whole bunch of invalid ones were sent out that weren't correctly identifying coronavirus. And the influenza rapid response tests have gotten better over the years. Um, my wife and I were just debating this the other day, and I said, if it looks like flu and it sounds like flu, you treat it for flu in most cases. Mm -hmm. But now the more widespread coronavirus gets, this might become a little more muddy, and it'll actually be very similar to a lot of these viruses that we deal with outside of the U.S. that most people have no idea abound. Mm -hmm. Many of these are mosquito-borne diseases. Um, you know, I, I think a lot about this coronavirus and influenza where coronavirus is getting so much publicity. I can guarantee you in the same period of time, more individuals across the globe have died from influenza. I'm perfectly comfortable giving that statistic at this point. Yeah, It's very similar. If you want a similar trend that you can think of that people might remember, it's very similar to the Ebola outbreak we had several years ago. Um, not the current one, but the one that we had in West Africa. People, I think there's 11,000, some people argue it was even more deaths over a two-year period mm -hmm. from Ebola. But what you didn't hear about is probably around a hundredfold more people were dying in those same countries of malaria at that same time period. And they're still dying of malaria yeah. at that rate. And so sometimes I think we get caught up in sens sensationalizing these new things, and I don't want to discount how severe it might be and if it might actually go to pandemic status where it covers the globe and a sufficient portion of the population is infected by it. I don't want to downplay that at all because I do think that's probable. Right. Not even possible, but I think it's probable with this. Mm -hmm. But influenza does the same thing every year. And yeah. I think the, 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 uh, an important point, we've talked about this, but I think it's an important point so we can kind of, of uh, bring this to conclusion. But um, what we're seeing is that the disease doesn't require a bunch of people communicating with a bunch of people in order for it to spread. Correct. You've talked already about one patient yes. act as the vector <clears throat> so that we're dealing with 
uh, what happened potentially in, in uh, South Korea, what's happening in this, because travel, because communication, because everything is so easy today. It only takes one. Takes yep. one. Yep. And I think um, the whole thing about coronavirus and why it's being sensationalized, it's more than just that it's new. It's more that there's so many unknowns. Absolutely. And I believe that's the scary part because then they're like, oh, we're thinking about influenza. But then we also got this. And then you mentioned so many other diseases. I'm walking around with hand sanitizer everywhere and I want to rub it all over my face now, just thinking about all the infections. That could be an improvement, Alex. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> I'll, I'll let my wife know as well. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, th- this topic wasn't really just, it wasn't brought up to be a downer. No. That's what I, that's what I want to, I want to get out there, that we're, re- we're merely just trying to get the information out there and show that there's actual facts rather than just scrolling down your timeline and your social media feed. You, there's facts out there. There's data to support what you're trying to get the point across about get your flu shot, get your vaccines, make sure that you're well protected from these crazy number of diseases and and sicknesses that are out there. Well, if you're yeah. worried about coronavirus, but you're not getting a flu shot, <laughs> you're, you're kind of missing the yes. point of yes. all the or the, the real potential for mm-hmm. having a bad effect from these viruses, right. um, you're, you're not taking the precautions that you could right. to something that might end up being just as deadly as influenza. Right. Any, anything else you'd like to add? No, I, I think the, a really important thing for everyone is to understand there is data, there is evidence. Uh, we talked about last time the CDC, the World Health Organization, WHO, you can get the facts and um, understand that science isn't perfect it goes with information and as information expands you have more information to deal with the good news bad news is is that we have now had several occasions of major um, uh, respiratory type of infections and others with SARS and MERS and and influenza etc and uh, coronavirus is not something to laugh at or otherwise it's deadly serious but we all have to pay attention to the fact that um, this is obviously an issue for concern, but more importantly, that we get the facts, we get the information, and if there is any preventive capability, then we need to seriously consider and take that, uh, and then hopefully it will lessen the severity of what goes on, and uh, we can move on. There will never be an end to this, mm-hmm. and as the world becomes smaller with regard to ease of communication, ease of being, uh, people being able to travel and move, this will continue and, and happen. So it's not a beginning and an end. It's a constant progression of what goes on. The more that we know makes it easier and better for us to deal with. So in short, get your flu shot and protect you and everybody else around you, right? I'm good with that. That's All right, it. good. Thank you very much, Dr. Walbert. Thank you very Thanks, much, Alex. Dr. Stern. And uh, that's it for this week's discussion. We'd like to remind you to go to ProPharmaConsultants.com. Also, there's a free information page called RxInfoX, where we have various healthcare articles from various healthcare sources that have actual real facts. And um, also, Dr. Stern has a bi-weekly newsletter that goes out every two weeks because it's bi-weekly, right? So it's, it's called Pharmacy Benefit News, and um, we'll see you next week.